0: You had one job. You ever heard that phrase before? It's one of the really the most popular expressions on social media. It's used as a little caption underneath hundreds, maybe thousands of, of internet memes. And the point of it is, is just to express outrage over some individual who's, who's failed at the, the sole task that they were responsible to carry out. So one of the earliest examples would be at the end of the Jurassic Park movie in the credits, uh, someone whose name is Phil is listed as the dinosaur supervisor, so someone shared that screenshot with the caption, you had one job in Jurassic Park, one job. But usually these, these memes have a little more to do with, with real life, there's a picture of some you know, egregious grammatical or spelling error on a sign, the bathroom or road sign, or there's some basic task that's just completely being done wrong, you know, mopping the carpet or something of that nature. Now, you know, I think we love these memes as a society, first of all, because they allow us to ridicule people who have messed up. Unfortunately, we, we like to do that. But I think they also tap into a real fear that all of us have. What if we were given one important, critical, responsibility one job and we're given the tools that we needed to carry it out and yet we failed how could we live with ourselves well today we're looking at a passage continuing in the book of second timothy and in this passage paul is is instructing his apprentice timothy about what's an absolutely critical task it's it's an incredibly important job, and Timothy has all the tools, all the resources that he needs, and Paul's going to lay uh, many of those out for him, and yet there's a real fear of failure. You know, what if, what if he drops the ball? What if, what if this, this whole project ends here? Many others in Timothy's position, similar positions, have failed. They've let Paul down, and so the stakes are high, So this is week two in our series through 2 Timothy. This is Paul's, the Apostle Paul's final letter to a young pastor named Timothy. He calls him his son in the faith. And so last week we saw how the letter opens with Paul looking back and remembering with thankfulness the the affection that Timothy has for him. And it goes both ways. And he also He affirms the sincere faith that Timothy has, as did his mother and his grandmother before him. There's this beautiful example of the power of the gospel working through three generations of a family. And as we we turn from Paul's opening greeting and introduction to the rest of the letter, Paul shifts from looking back to then looking forward. He's looking forward to the future of the church. And I summarized kind of his, his charge to Timothy in the rest of the letter like this. I said, even though it's costly, remain faithful to Jesus and his gospel, because Jesus is always faithful. And so this morning, we're in, in chapter 1, verses 6 through 18. You can find that on page 995 of, of one of those Blue Pew Bibles there. But for 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 6-18, we're finishing up the chapter, and Paul is really going to hit the ground running with his solemn charge to Timothy. Let's read. For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher an apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. So as Paul writes to his his faithful ministry partner, this this outstanding young leader who really represents the future of the church, he knows his own time is running out, and the gospel message must be courageously guarded and defended. This gospel certainly could be corrupted as, as other things are added to it, watering it down, altering it. This gospel could be lost. It could be just taken for granted and even forgotten due to apathy. And so he instructs Timothy that faithfulness to Jesus and to his gospel requires God's servant to do to do three things. We're going to see in this passage. Faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel requires God's servant to do three things, and that is to despise the shame, to guard the deposit and to trust the protector. Despise the shame, guard the deposit, and trust the protector. So we begin point one, despise the shame. And we can see this in, in these uh, opening verses of our passage, verses six and following. Paul opens with the words, for this reason. So he's looking back to what he was just writing about, Timothy's faith, In the previous verses, in view of the sincere faith that's living in Timothy, Paul reminds him to fan into flame, to rekindle the gift that was given through the laying on of Paul's hands. And it seems that Timothy received this gift when he was ordained. What's described in 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul writes, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So this is likely a spiritual gift Perhaps one of those gifts that's listed in in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12, and those lists include gifts that would be useful to someone in Timothy's position, gifts of exhortation or teaching or wisdom or leadership. But since this gift came on the occasion when Paul and the elders laid their hands on Timothy at his ordination into ministry— this gift could be related more to his office as a pastor and elder. Because in, in 1 Corinthians 12, 28, prophets and teachers are described as gifts in the church. People. In, in Ephesians 4:11, people in ministry roles are described as gifts, prophets, or evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. But whatever this gift is, there's actually a parallel example in the Old Testament. And, and there are a lot of things that, that, that kind of interesting, interestingly line up. When Moses is about to die, a similar situation, his apprentice Joshua was commissioned to carry on his mantle to shepherd Israel. And so Moses laid hands on Joshua. It says in Numbers 27, 23. And he invested some of his authority in Joshua. And then in, in the account in Deuteronomy 34, 9, it says that Joshua was filled with the spirit of wisdom as a result of this laying on of hands. Now, another thing that we see in both the Old Testament and the New Testament examples is is kind of this discrepancy in terms of the the role. Just as there's a difference between the unique historic role of of Moses as, as the lawgiver, as this great prophet who led Israel out of Egypt... And then with Joshua, his successor, there's also a a difference between the unique role of Paul, the the great apostle, this pioneer missionary who planted churches throughout the ancient world, who, who wrote nearly half of our New Testament, and then Timothy, this pastor of a church in Ephesus. So there's a passing of the baton. Yes, there's a spiritual gift that's imparted and a certain authority passed on, but the nature of the role, the nature of the authority is different. But why why is it Paul is reminding him of this gift, urging him to fan this spiritual gift into flame? Why does does he remind him then that the spirit that he has, which is referring to the Holy Spirit, this is a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control? I think this is why. It's because the temptation, which he then talks about here, the temptation will be to be ashamed of the gospel, ashamed of this testimony about the Lord Jesus, as he says in verse 8. And the the temptation will be to to be ashamed of Paul, the servant of Jesus, and his gospel. So, So rather than abandoning Paul, like so many others have done, so many who were ashamed of his chains, ashamed of the offense of the gospel, no, Timothy has to be ready and willing to suffer with Paul. He must follow Christ's example, who in Hebrews twelve two, it says, for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. See, the nature of shame, whether it's the shame we feel about ourselves or if we're ashamed of, of someone else or something else, it causes us to withdraw, to, to, to back away, to isolate And so shame causes relationships with with God and with others to to break down. So if Timothy feels ashamed of the gospel, he will become more distant spiritually and emotionally from his Savior. Instead of moving toward God with faith and with delight, he's going to hide, just like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And this is inevitable because to be ashamed of the gospel message and therefore, to distance himself from it cannot be separated from being ashamed of the person Jesus, the very Savior whom the gospel proclaims. In Mark 8:38, Jesus warned his disciples not to be ashamed of him or his words. The message and the person are inextricably linked. A little further down in our passage, in verse 12, Paul Says, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed. It's not merely a doctrine or a creed, he says, I've believed, it's a person. You can't separate the two things. And so the first danger is that Timothy would be ashamed of the gospel and therefore ashamed of Christ himself. The second danger is that he could be ashamed of Paul, the herald of the gospel. If he feels ashamed of Paul's chains, of of how so many have abandoned and rejected Paul, he's going to feel a real inability to to tolerate all these uncomfortable emotions. He's going to feel inadequate to the task at hand. He's not going to push through the discomfort and the shame and go and visit Paul. Instead, he's going to keep his distance and stop associating with Paul. Uh, The author, Kurt Thompson, in a book entitled The Soul of Shame... Writes this about shame. He says, When we experience shame, we tend to turn away from others. And this kind of turning away, it leads to, to more isolation and more disconnection. And so Timothy is going to need to exercise his gift. He's going to need to depend on the Holy Spirit if he's to remain faithful, if he's to despise the shame and move toward Paul and toward Jesus instead of backing away. He's going to need, as Paul described here in verse in verse 7, power, love, and self-control. He's going to need power to endure hardship and suffering and to, to guard and protect this gospel. He's going to need love. He's going to need love for Paul, who's asking him to come visit me, to identify with me, remain loyal to me. He's going to need love for the church a church who needs their pastor to teach sound doctrine and not be swayed by the winds of change. And he's going to need self-control to press in past that discomfort, that fear, that shame, and to, to do the hard things that are in front of him. You see, God graciously gives his people spiritual gifts and Paul's really clear about this in his teaching in First Corinthians. It's not to puff us up. It's not to be superior to others or to show off. No, they're to help us do what is beyond our human ability. See, when an opportunity presents itself to share the gospel with someone or to, to show love and care for a Christian who's struggling, fear and shame, our inadequacy, all these things are going to conspire to hold us back. But a spiritual gift empowers us to be able to love beyond our capacity and to have the discipline to press in past that, that comfort level. As, as one pastor I heard growing up put it, God gives us the help and he gets the glory. We get the help and he gets the glory. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11 Where Peter says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you serve, it's by God's strength. You get this this supply of strength. And God is glorified. So, as we consider this, this topic of shame and Timothy's need not to be ashamed, but to remain committed to Paul and committed to the gospel, if you look down at verse 15, Paul actually holds up these kind of two contrasting examples, these, these object lessons, as it were, in 15 through 18. And on the one hand, there are two individuals in particular who who abandoned Paul in his great hour of need. When he was arrested, then he's put on trial in Rome. These men, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, nothing else is said about them. We don't know their motives or why Paul singles them out. Maybe maybe they were, were leaders and had influence on others to cause them also to turn away from Paul. Perhaps they were especially close with Paul and that made their defection all the more painful. Their names are not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament, but they serve here as a warning sign not to allow shame to create distance between us and our Savior, between us and the gospel, or between us and faithful servants of the gospel. These men were ashamed of Paul and his gospel message. And so when this this crisis hit, when things began to fall apart, they chose the wrong side. But then on the other hand, Paul spends a lot more time, and you can tell he has a lot more joy in recounting the story of Onesiphorus. This is a brother who had often refreshed Paul, it says in verse 16. He often refreshed me apparently showing him hospitality and meeting his needs. And then when Paul was in prison, he says in verse 16, he was not ashamed of my chains, but when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. This brother did not allow shame to drive a wedge. He didn't withdraw or distance himself from Paul. He didn't lose connection. He's an example of the complete opposite of all that. He came to Rome and made a great effort, risking his own safety, to find Paul. Uh, no doubt it would not be an easy task to, to go to a great city as, as big as the city of Rome in that time and then to, to try to track, just track some prisoner down who's in a Roman dungeon. And so Paul prays that Jesus will grant mercy to Onesiphorus at the second coming. This is a brother who's, who's demonstrated the sincerity of his faith. And so, Christian here this morning, I think in view of of these two contrasting examples here, of Phygelus and Hermogenes and then of of Onesiphorus, I think one thing we should keep in mind is to to beware the, the prosperity gospel attitude or mindset that can be so subtle and so insidious. Now, perhaps most of us, hopefully most of us, understand Jesus didn't promise that his followers were going to be materially wealthy. But you know what? It goes, it goes beyond money. It, it's any time, any situation, any relationship where we treat God like a vending machine. You know, I do my part and then he's going to give me the desired outcome. You know, perhaps you were sold the promise that, that faith and, and obedience will guarantee a happy dream marriage and everything will be per- picture perfect. Or, 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 or maybe you were taught that applying biblical principles guarantees that you'll have kids who grow up to be model Christians because you followed the formula in a, in, a, in a Christian child training book. Maybe, maybe deep down... You expect that, that godliness should, is going to result in, in all kinds of cultural influence and in, in being respected in the community in, in, in good health and blessing. But you see, when these false ideas take root, we're going to reap a harvest of severe disappointment whenever our own lives meet with trials. And likewise, when we see faithful servants of Christ who struggle with, with health, maybe who struggle with opposition or rejection, discouragement, maybe they meet with, with, with real disappointments in their ministry, disappointments in their marriage, disappointments in their children, then we might be tempted to, to feel ashamed and, and to back away. Because this is not what we envisioned for a life that's hashtag blessed right? Just like Job's friends, seeing suffering and weakness in what, what seemed to be someone who was faithfully serving and worshiping God, that makes us uneasy. It unsettles us. But church, if the gospel cannot remain the center, the foundation, the anchor for our soul, for God's people in the midst of struggles, then we are in big trouble. Because Jesus never promised ease and success. He promised persecution. He said, take up your cross daily. And so the gospel is for the poor in spirit, the needy, the humble. God's grace is perfected in weakness. Isaiah 66:2 is where God says, this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So in order to be faithful to his calling, faithful to the task, Timothy must despise the shame so that he can guard this deposit. And that's point two in our outline here. Guard the deposit. And Paul spells out in verse 9 this gospel, this gospel he is suffering for, and Timothy also has to be willing to suffer for. So in verse 9 he says, That God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, salvation is the work of God, He's the one who calls believers to a holy calling. And it's according, not, not to their works, it's not because of works, it's according to his purpose and grace. So you see, God doesn't choose already holy people to be saved based on their good works or their merit. No. According to his purpose, God graciously calls sinners, and then he gives them a holy calling. In Titus 3.5, Paul uses really similar language when he says, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. And then in Ephesians 2.8, famously Paul explains, by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But see, then Paul goes on to say in the very next verse there in Ephesians two that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, Christianity is unique among all the the religions and the faiths of the world because salvation is a work of God's grace. It's not something we can earn in any way by our works, by our efforts. The hymn Rock of Ages says, Nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross I cling. See, God does not call the holy. He saves, he calls sinners, those who, Ephesians 2 also says, were dead in their sins, and he makes them alive. And then he gives them a holy calling. He gives them good works that they were created to do. So Paul goes on in this description of the gospel to say, that God's gracious purpose which was was already fixed before the ages before the foundation of the world it's now been manifested by the the appearance of Christ the first appearance of Christ what we celebrate at advent at christmas his life his death it's what John describes in the opening of his gospel that we've recently been studying the word became flesh and dwelt among us and what is it that Jesus did when he came Paul says here in Second Timothy, he abolished death and brought life and immortality to light. So through Christ's death and resurrection, he won the victory over death itself. It no longer has the last word. So believers don't have to live paralyzed by the fear of its power. Hebrews 2:15 says that through the fear of death, we were subject to lifelong slavery. But now we need not fear physical death because that means. Being present with the Lord. As Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. And also, because of Jesus' resurrection, we know that we will also be raised. As Pastor Tanner taught us through 1 Corinthians 15, our great hope in the resurrection because of Jesus' resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15 55, it tells us that death has lost its sting. But not only is death defeated, Paul goes on to say, the way to eternal life has been illuminated. Whoever believes in Jesus will not perish. They're delivered from spiritual death and given this spiritual new life. And they will not suffer eternal death, eternal judgment. They will not be separated from God forever because of their sin. Instead, they have eternal life. They're forgiven. Their sins are forgiven. They're reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And this is is the gospel. If you're here uh, this morning and, and you're not a believer or you're not familiar with this message, let me tell you, this is the most important thing that you will hear today. This, this gospel message was so glorious, so valuable, the Apostle Paul was willing to die for it. Timothy was willing to endure suffering, to guard it. And it's been preserved, it's been handed down for generations because God in his kindness, wanted you to know it and to be transformed by it. And if you want to, to, to understand more, if you still have questions, I would encourage you try reading through one of the Gospels, of, of the Gospel of Mark or the Gospel of John in the New Testament. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, take one of our, uh, those blue pew Bibles that are underneath the seats in front of you. We'd be happy to give that to you as a gift and then come talk to me or one of the other pastors or elders, we would be more than happy to to meet with you, to get together, to discuss what you're reading. Nothing is more important. Paul goes on to say that this gospel in verse 11 is, is, is the message for which he was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher. As a preacher, Paul must proclaim it as an apostle, he, he must clearly define the message as this specially chosen representative of Christ. And then as a teacher, he has to faithfully pass it on to others who can faithfully teach it after him. And Paul will suffer in order to fulfill this calling as preacher and apostle and teacher of the gospel that was entrusted to him. And now he charges Timothy, in verse 13 and 14, Follow the pattern of sound words you heard from me. This is the teaching. And then in verse 14, Guard the good deposit that has been entrusted to you. And notice how he qualifies these instructions. There, in verse 13, Do this, Timothy, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So I actually want to camp out for a a second here on the second word there. The love. The love that is in Christ Jesus. You know, guarding the gospel is a, is a weighty task, and it, it does belong to the whole church. It's not just for pastors. It's not just for preachers. The whole church is tasked with guarding the gospel. That's really what the, the whole letter to the Galatians is all about in your Bible. But it requires courage. It requires boldness and strength and endurance, yes. But it also must be done in love a love that flows from our union with Christ. So Christian, you do well to guard sound doctrine, to defend the faith against corruption or error, but as guardians, we need wisdom and discernment to learn the art of, as one book title aptly puts it, of finding the right hills to die on. You know, the foundational doctrines that Christians have held across the centuries yeah, Pastor James has talked about this in our discovery class looking through our statement of faith. What are the doctrines that the Christians throughout the ages have all agreed and held as, as central to the gospel? The Trinity, right? The divinity of Christ, his divinity and his humanity. Our need as sinners for salvation through the atoning death of Christ. These are first order doctrines that, that, that truly constitute hills to die on you know what, your particular view on the timing of the tribulation as described in, in Revelation is probably not worth dying for. And you see, we, might, we may not be able to, to be fellow church members with, with other Christians who, who understand and practice baptism differently because our practice is different. From theirs, and it has implications, real implications, for our understanding of, of how a church is constituted and what it means to be a member. But you know, even though we may disagree on baptism, we can still cooperate in gospel proclamation here in our community. And so not only must, must we find the right hills to die on, but we, we must speak the truth in love, as Paul writes elsewhere. If there's a need for correction, even if, even if we encounter dangerous false teachings... Our words and actions are always characterized by love. You know, throughout this letter, 2 Timothy, Paul acknowledges, and even by name, many who have hurt him, who have abandoned him. He even warns Timothy to beware Alexander the coppersmith, this man who, he says, strongly opposed our message. But even there, Paul leaves retribution to God he says, the Lord will repay him according to his deeds. There's no, there's no bitterness. There's no lashing out. There's no attempt to make his enemies pay or to mock them or to dehumanize them. So remember, whether you're 23 or whether you're 83, it's far too easy to, to bully people or belittle people from your smartphone or or sitting behind a keyboard, if that person was actually standing in front of you, in the flesh, perhaps it might give you pause. But brothers and sisters, at any rate, we are not going to to win the Lord's battles and defend orthodoxy for future generations by being social media warriors. You know, so much of that is, is, is just often a waste of time, but let me encourage you with this. Spend time with real people face-to-face and, and, and get together to, to sharpen one another and allow God's word to shape your thinking and, and disciple one another and help those who are, who are straying, but, but face-to-face and in love. That is how I believe real gospel fruit will come. So Timothy, he needs to guard the gospel in love. Paul also says he needs to do it in faith. And that brings us briefly to our third and final point. Third point is trust the protector. Timothy has this overwhelming task before him. His spiritual father, Paul, doesn't have much time left. Timothy has to overcome fear and weakness and shame. He needs to guard this invaluable gospel deposit that Paul's entrusted to him. Who who can be sufficient for these things? And if Timothy's going to rise to the occasion, just mustering up a whole lot of courage is not enough. Even even love is not enough on its own. He has to be grounded in faith, an ironclad faith in the ultimate protector. This is the only true basis for hope It's the only true basis for assurance that the gospel will not fail, and this faith has been woven throughout our passage from the very from the very beginning, from the very top. If we look at if we consider verse seven, God gave us a spirit. How is Timothy going to fulfill his ministry with power and love and self control? It's the spirit God gave him. It's ultimately the spirit's power. It's not. Some strength that's inherent to Timothy. And then in verse 8, do not be ashamed. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. How will Timothy despise the shame? How will he remain steadfast and loyal to his Lord and to the gospel and to Paul? Even, even if it means suffering, it's by the power of God, the very God who graciously saved Timothy. Then we jump down to verse 12, Paul. Writes, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. How can Paul hold himself up as an example of one who despises the shame and one who endures suffering? He knows whom he has believed. He's fully convinced Christ is able to guard what's been entrusted to Paul until that day, until the second coming. And so Paul says, guard the gospel, Timothy, follow my example of suffering, have no shame, because you know the true guard, the ultimate protector, is Jesus himself. And then in verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit. How can Timothy guard this deposit Paul's leaving with him for safekeeping? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within him the power of the Holy Spirit working through Timothy, the undefeatable protection of Christ who's entrusted his glorious gospel to frail people like Paul and Timothy, like your pastors and elders, like this entire church congregation. He's called us to guard it, but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's through the protection of of Christ himself. This is how Jesus will build his church, how Jesus will preserve his church. So I want to close with a, a quote from commentator and author John Stott, who just says this so well, talking about this passage, ultimately, it is God himself who is the guarantor of the gospel. It is his responsibility to preserve it. We may see the evangelical faith, the faith of the gospel spoken against everywhere, and the apostolic message of the New Testament ridiculed. We may have to watch an increasing apostasy in the church as our generation abandons the faith of past generations. Do not be afraid. God will never allow the light of the gospel to be finally extinguished. True, He has committed it to us, frail and fallible creatures. He has placed his treasure in brittle earthenware vessels, and we must play our part in guarding and defending the truth. Nevertheless, in entrusting the deposit to our hands, he has not taken his own hands off it. He is himself its final guardian, and he will preserve the truth which he has committed to the church. We know this because we know him in whom we have trusted, and continue to trust. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word, for the the foundation of the prophets and the apostles that has been given, uh, faithfully preserved throughout the ages, that we can look to your word, we can learn, we can find life there. We pray that you would help each and every one of us to be faithful stewards and guardians of that, knowing that it's your power, the same power that saved us, that preserves us and helps us to preserve uh, the faith for future generations. And so we just thank you and praise you for that. We pray even today that you would strengthen our our resolve and help us to to draw toward one another in, in encouragement and in love so that we can do this great work of proclamation and preservation together as your church. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.